0: Good morning. There's a lot of new faces, and I'm one very excited about that. Uh, uh, This is one of my favorite Sundays. Uh, Child dedication is one of my favorite Sundays. There's just a different energy uh, in the room most of the time because that means there's additional kids here, but there's also additional family members here. And so, just uh, before I even dive into the message today, if you're here just supporting, uh, you know, obviously, whatever, my family, thanks for being here. Uh, But, Jackie and and Waylon's family and and Nick's family, just thank you guys for being here. Thanks for joining us. We are so blessed to have you guys here, so thank you. Um, And I want to start off with asking a simple question. We're in this series, and you may, after I ask this question, be like, what in the world does this question have to do with an anchor? Uh, You'll find out soon enough. Uh, My question is this, though, is how do you drive? (laughs) Now, before you start elbowing the spouse or significant other next to you, Hear me out. How do you drive? Do you drive defensively? Do you drive defensively? A little bit more cautious, you're a little bit more maybe aware and, and preventative in how you drive and how you operate, or do you drive maybe a little bit more offensively? Uh, you take a little bit more bigger risks. You, you kind of assess the situation, and you're like, I think I can squeeze in there, and you just go for it, right? Right? Uh, Where do you fall? I would definitely fall much more in the offensive category. Um, Sometimes speed limits, and and you're like, ah, you know what? They're just driving too slow. My boys now are starting to pick up. Dad is a little bit more of an aggressive driver than mom is, right? Dad, they're just going slow, go around them. I'm like, that's called a shoulder. We can't drive on that, right? I'm more of the offensive driver. But like, the next question I want to ask is not just how do you drive, but how do you drive in a storm? The worst season in the world is coming up shortly, winter. I preach, right? Winter. Why we live in a state that snows? We don't know. But how do you drive in a storm, and is it different than, it, than how you drove in the summertime? Is it different? When when the snow falls and there's slippery ice spots on the road, do you drive differently than when the sun is shining? Or what about you're caught in a torrential downpour and your wipers just can't keep up fast enough and your tires are a little bit more bald than what they should be? Do you drive a little differently? How about a tornado? It wasn't that long ago that shockingly, a tornado passed through here. If you're driving through that Moment that night, do you drive a little differently when the winds have picked up and your car can get pushed from one lane to the other? I think for the majority of us, if not all of us, would say we drive differently in a storm. We drive differently in a storm. Do we drive differently though? And do we navigate our lives differently spiritually when we're caught in a storm in our life? How are you? How am I driving spiritually today? We've been in this series called Anchored, and we're looking at the anchors of our faith and in our lives. The first week, we talked about how our anchor has to be in our identity to Jesus Christ. And all these other anchors that we talk about, fasting and and prayer and, and serving, all these other anchors drive us to the place of being anchored into Jesus. And today, I want to talk about what it means for us to be anchored in prayer, because I truly believe that prayer steers us into and through God's will in our lives. Prayer steers us into and through God's will in our lives. I mean, that's what we're chasing, right? Like God's will. If you grew up in the church, or maybe you've been around church for a little bit, maybe even sitting at home right now, you've, even that first song we sang, like um, the Lord's Prayer, we've maybe heard it or, or seen it before, been exposed to it, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. Maybe we've said those words. And I love the way that Rich Vlado another pastor in New York. He puts it this way, that your kingdom come, your will be done. It's not language of resignation, but rather it's language of participation. It's not us saying, Lord, there's nothing we can do, so you just go fix the world. But rather it's more, Lord, there's so much we can do, but only in and through your power. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's an invitation to participate with him. I love that we serve a God as a God of participation, a God that invites us into his will, his desire, and his kingdom. But how do we see that play out? Because if we truly believe that prayer is what steers us into and through God's will, then the answer is clear. We have to have a life individually and corporately, but has to start individually that is anchored in prayer. We can't just show up and and just check a box once or twice a week and say, I'm good. I checked it off. No need for me to do it again. Or even to say, well, I don't have the spiritual gift of prayer, so that's not really for me. I I just don't think that's how this works. Especially if you look at the life of Jesus Christ, our, our Savior, who modeled this for us, Jesus modeled what it meant to go, withdraw, and be anchored in prayer personally. And he would withdraw often. There'd be moments where he is ministering to the crowds and thousands of people. And it says, and he left to go into the wilderness, to go pray. He would withdraw to go pray. And during that time, he would seek the will of his father, to seek the father's heart, to seek the heavenly kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And I think one of the most pivotal moments of how Jesus modeled this was actually just a few short hours before his death. If you have your Bible with you uh, or a digital device, turn it to Luke 22 with me. And this is a moment where uh, Jesus would have been uh, essentially, you know, the Last Supper has happened and he knows what's about to go down. He knows Judas, one of his disciples, is about to betray him. And he goes to the garden, he takes his disciples to a garden. And this is what happens in verses 39 uh, through 42. This is where we're going to pick up. Then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room, and he went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. And there he told them, he, his disciples, pray that you will not give in to temptation. So he walked away by a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And he said, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet... I want your will to be done, not mine. And these first few verses here that we're going to be looking at, uh, I I want to kind of dissect it a little bit and see what we can gain from this. And the first thing is, as you can see, uh, it says that Jesus has been retreating. So he went to this spot. He's been going to this spot for the past few nights, actually. He would go to the temple. He would teach in the morning. He would teach during the day. He would, the crowds would gather, and he would administer his teachings, and, and he'd show them who he was, and he'd model God's kingdom and his love here on earth. And then he would withdraw at night to this place to be with his father. He's been retreating here for a few days now, and he instructs his disciples a very simple instruction. Pray pray he doesn't say say this prayer six times and do this and make sure you're you know facing this tree or that like he just says pray pray don't give in to temptation pray actively that you're not going to enter into temptation go on and pray that you would Uh, just be able to face the forces up against you? Pray uh, for energy and endurance. This is late at night. Would you just pray? And after he says this, he leaves them and he says he goes a stone's throw away. Now, I don't know if the disciples played baseball or not. So I don't know if that's like from center field to second base or if it's like we're talking second base to first base, right? A stone's throw away. I don't know how strong Peter's arm really is. You know what I'm saying? But what I do know is this is a stone's throw away means he's still near. He's still close. They can not only see him, but more than likely also hear him. He's near the disciples and he's kneeling. You can feel the pressure beginning to fall upon him and beginning to crush and burden his shoulders. And Jesus here, I would believe, as he's praying, is not worrying about the right words or even the right things to say, but rather he's just laying it all on the line. I mean, even his words, right? Father, if you're willing, take this cup of suffering from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. These are not very like polished words. You can almost hear the the tension in the plea, maybe in his voice of dad, look, I don't want this. This is hard. This is a weight. If there's any other way, like you are God, you could create any other way. If there's any other possible way, how about we go with that option? Good idea? But at the end of the day, I'll follow your will. I'll follow your will. I mean, maybe here Jesus wouldn't have been praying the right way or using the right even words according to the Jewish system at the time. Maybe he wasn't even in the right posture, but rather he's just pouring it out from the most desperate portions of his heart. If it's your will, he prays this about the father's will, about his dad's will. There's a tension in his voice. Can I just be honest with you? As I read these these verses, I don't like the father's will. I I just don't. I don't like the Father's will because I don't like the idea of a brutal death, a judgment. I don't like pain. I don't like suffering. Would anybody else sign up for pain and suffering if they had the choice? I didn't think so. I don't like the Father's will here. I would have been much more like the first Adam in the garden. No, God, not your will be done, but mine. I've got it from here right? Maybe that's what we have found ourselves even in our life, saying. But Jesus, I think, understands something so deep and so necessary even for us to understand. Jesus, even in this prayer, he's not escaping the storm of life that he is in, but rather he's withdrawing to anchor deeper, deeper into God who handles and controls the storms. He's not trying to escape the storm. God, I know what's about to happen. You fully have revealed that to me. I I know this path set before me. If that's your will, I will follow. He's not trying to escape it or run from it. Rather, he's sitting there saying like, okay, God, I see the storm. I'm in the storm. How do I grow closer to you in the midst of this? Where do I go from here? And I think we often misunderstand prayer as something that prevents storms in our lives from ever happening. That's what we'd like to see prayer be, right? God, like, I've prayed that you wouldn't let this happen. Like, I prayed for that, so that shouldn't happen, right? Wrong. We try to see prayer as this idea of, like, if I pray for it, then God's going to automatically answer it the way I want, and I'll be okay. But this isn't how Jesus prayed. He withdrew in the midst of the storms, even of the crowds, the expectations regularly to make sure his anchor was secure in the heavenly father. He withdrew. He left. Even in the midst of struggles and tensions in his life, he still goes to a place of anchor that he's had. But I know what we're all saying, right? Like Jesus lived in a different time than us. Like I'm just so busy. I'm just so busy. I don't have time. I mean, I wake up and I have to get my kids ready, and that's like a full-time job in and of itself. And then I have to get them to school, and then after school, well, then I have to go run, and I have to do these errands. And by the time I'm done with those errands, I gotta go home and I put, I gotta put the groceries away. I can't have the milk go bad, and you know, I got eggs and I got some frozen egg waffles. I can't let those spoil either, so I gotta put those away. And then after that, man, like. By that time, it's turn around and go right back and pick up the, the kids from school. And then once they get home, like there's nothing getting done once those kids are home from school. It's like mini tornadoes all over our household, right? And then, and then you got to feed them. Like you, you got to do that. So you got make dinner. And then after dinner, it's, it, it's like trying to like wrestle cats to put PJs on and get them in bed. And then maybe they're like my kids and they just don't like to stay in bed. And then and that's a whole nother fight. And then after finally they fall asleep, all I want to do is just sit down and enjoy a little bit of those peanut M&Ms that are hidden away in our cupboard. <laughs> I just don't have time. So we escape. We tell ourselves we, we escape. Tell ourselves we don't have the time. Life's been so hard. I don't want to touch any of the main things to get done. But rather, I just need to crush this next season on Netflix. I don't have time, though. Like, I'm just so busy. I know I need to finish this project or even the homework. But, I mean, football is on all weekend. And, well, football. Right, Like I just don't have time. I can't handle the tension of this relationship anymore. So this alcohol, it just numbs me enough to just make it through so I just actually don't remember what's going on. I escape and, and I know there's just, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I'll just look at those half-clothed people on Instagram and, and it's not that bad. It makes me feel valued, it makes me feel worthy. And I mean after all they have clothes, it's not that bad. Or I'm just so exhausted, I'm emotionally drained. I don't have it. I can't take it anymore. I'm just going to cuddle up on my couch next to my good friends, Ben and Jerry, and finish off this tub of Rocky Road ice cream. Just too busy. I don't have the time. I don't have the time to sit, to pray, to journal, to be with the Father. Jesus lived in a different lifetime, but... Do we really believe Jesus wasn't busy? I mean, he was feeding 5,000 people. He was healing lepers and deaf people and blind people. To say Jesus wasn't busy, I think, is an insult. I think Jesus was just as busy, if not as more busy, than sometimes what we find ourselves as. But yet, he found plenty of time to withdraw to be with the Father. And I don't think... For a lot of us, I don't think the reason that we don't pray is because of time. I, I, I don't. I think, honestly, the reason we don't pray, it comes down to a humility issue. It comes down to a heart issue. That I'm, I'm good in this situation without God right now. I'll just wait till it's so bad, then I'll call on him like the magic fixer-upper, and he'll fix all my problems, but I'm good right now. It comes down to a, a pride issue. I'm self-sufficient enough. Our jobs will meet my needs. Our relationships will provide comfort. Our, my ambition and intellect will give, su- will give me success. It's a pride issue. But I truly believe that as we sit and as we learn even from Jesus' example, when we come with a humble heart and a spirit of humility, God meets us there. God meets us there. I mean, Jesus continues his prayer through humility. Humility. If you continue on in verses 43 now through 46, this is what he says. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently. He was in such agony of the spirit that his sweat fell to the ground ground like great drops of blood. At last he stood up again and returned to the disciples only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. So here he is once again praying, and it says that he is strengthened by an angelic being. An angelic uh, force comes, and as Jesus is steering and focusing on the will of the Father, it says that he is strengthened. We know that there's an incredible pressure on him, that his sweat, and in some of the other gospels, it says he's sweating out blood, drops of blood, because of the immense pressure that is going on. And in our weakness, we say we see a great strength of God arise. And here's what's interesting to me. It says that Jesus was strengthened in the moment of prayer as he's with his father in prayer, an angel comes and strengthens him. So what does he do after that? Jesus keeps praying. If I've been praying for strength and endurance, if I've been praying for more of the God of the presence of God, and then all of a sudden, if I feel it, can I tell you what my first habit would be? I'd get up and I'd go. I'd be like, Hallelujah, amen. He has heard me from the cries of the deep pit. Let's go to work, right? I'd get up and I would run and I'd say, like, we, we're done, we're good. But here, Jesus, he's strengthened, and what does he do? He keeps praying with even more emotion, with even more power behind him. I felt better about the situation. I can go now. But instead, Jesus says, no, no. Prayer is not an invitation just to go to work. Prayer is an invitation to sit and be more in his presence. And Jesus understood that. Even in the midst of being strengthened, Jesus understood that It's not an invitation now to just go and work immediately, but rather there's more of God's presence that He wants us to see. It doesn't offer us a means to be stronger, it offers us a way to come closer to God. We often misunderstand prayers looking for answers or solutions to our problems. We're asking God to make us stronger so that we deal with the storms that are coming our way. But God longs to comfort us in the midst of the storm. So that he is our true and strong anchor. Blake said it earlier. Maybe I don't know what you walked in here with. I don't know what storm you have felt like you are facing in your life today. I don't know. But what if what if God wants to walk with you and meet you in the midst of the storm, not remove you from the storm, not stop the rain from coming, but to let you know that He is present and He is there. Where do you need to let God today work things out in in your life, but do so through the, the anchor of prayer? What if we pray? What if we chose to pray differently? What if we pray with the idea and expectation that God is more extravagant and abundant than our wildest imagination? What if we pray that he can and will do more than anything we could ever dream of. That even in Jesus is sitting here in the garden, one of the weakest moments of his life is laying the foundations and the groundwork for one of the most glorious victories ever known to mankind, defeating death so that we can have salvation. And it's the groundwork that's being laid in the garden as he prays with emotion and passion. Jesus reveals that our weakness in prayer shows God's power all around us because we truly believe that prayer steers us into and through God's will. We believe that, and I think Jesus does too. Like, what does it look like for us to find a regular rhythm of withdrawing to practice real prayer in private? Something that's not rehearsed, something that's not perfect, but rather it's raw, it's real, it's authentic, and it's messy. What does it look like to let God hear our emotions in our heart? Your anger, God can handle. Your happiness, God is there. Your grief and your sorrow, God wants to be invited into it. What if we believe that God wants it all, not just the nicely packed and, and packaged prayers? He wants the messy, the raw, the real prayers. He wants us to allow Him to tear down walls that we've built around prayer and just be with him. What I find interesting is when Jesus talks about prayer, when Jesus so often even not just talks about it and teaches about it, but does it, Jesus doesn't really give any instruction on some stuff when it comes to prayer. He he doesn't tell us, this must be your posture. If you're not sitting in this posture or kneeling in this posture or laying down in this posture, it doesn't count. He doesn't say that. He, He really doesn't even talk about a place of prayer. Uh, it has to be in the temple, or it has to be in your home, or it can't be in your car. He doesn't talk about, he never gives instruction on the posture or the place, or even the time of prayer. What's also fascinating to me is he doesn't give any instruction on the length of prayer. The Lord's Prayer is 50-some words. You can say it in less than a minute. No, 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 no. Jesus says this about prayer. When you pray, not if, when you pray. I think what he's showing us is stop worrying about the mechanics and just pray. Just pray. Something that I have just felt is how we even have made prayer in the church. The church, capital C church, something that never was designed to be. I heard it said once, and it's burdened me Uh, since. I I heard it at a conference three years ago, and it's burdened me since. And it was a church without an emphasis on prayer where leaders fail to lead in prayer, where prayer is reduced to just simple platform transitions is not a church. God said, my church shall be called a house of prayer, and the church needs to step up. Lead by example. We may need to repent of what we've done, and we need to get desperate in prayer. Love that. Desperate in prayer. Desperate prayers. When was the last time we said a desperate prayer? When was the last time you said a desperate prayer? I remember when we first took Esty, who we dedicated this morning. Um, Esty is our youngest. All four of our kids are... Uh, share the same mom and different biological fathers. And I remember when we first took Esty into our home and into our care. Uh, She was born with some drugs in her system. And that wasn't a big shock for us. Uh, All of our kids had that. And so we were like, okay, uh, we can figure that out and and, uh, go from there. And she didn't have the best or or much at all prenatal care. So that was a little nerve-wracking. And then I remember when she came, there was this, uh, phone call after they literally was like, dropped her off into our door and laughed. We we're like, oh, we have a newborn again, and we don't have some of the stuff that we need. And then I remember getting the phone call where it was, uh, they shared that she was not only born with some drugs, but she was also born with a, a disease in her little body as a newborn being on a penicillin drip to fight this disease in her little body. I couldn't imagine that. 10 days, she was hooked up to a penicillin drip. I remember taking SD to doctor's visits, all five plus of them. A vision doctor, a hearing doctor, a neurological doctor, her regular pediatrician, a infectious disease doctor, and her, her specialist nurse. I, re- I remember Courtney and I taking her to all these different doctors to have them run all these different tests and put stickers all over her and and, and do all these tests upon her, test after test, just waiting to see what's going on. I remember when we had to schedule a spinal tap for our six-month-old. It would be her second one. The idea of my six-month-old little baby being put under and then shoved a needle into her tailbone did not sit well with me. I remember one night I had my uh, advisory team meeting. And as everybody kind of left, I was locking up and I was right outside of our, our chapter two room. And all I could think to myself is it was in the moment of weakness. Thinking to myself, God, I am so unfit. I have no freaking idea what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't even know how to handle this. I'm mad. I'm scared and I'm nervous. I don't want to see her hurt. I don't want to see her sick anymore. I remember sitting in that hallway and and, and verbally crying out, God, I want to quit. Did we, God, did we take off, did we bite off too much to chew? Is four too many? Did I make a mistake saying yes to SD coming? That verbal word came out of my mouth and before I could catch it, I was like, Oh, crap. He heard that. And I remember just desperately praying. God, if it is your will, would you just radically heal her of this disease that is running through her body right now? If it is your will, would you just put your hand upon her? If it is your will, would you steer us into it and through this storm right now? I'm sick and tired of doctors. I'm sick and tired of test after test. I'm tired. I don't know where to go. Desperate prayers. After that six-month spinal tap, we waited for a few weeks, and we got the results back, and God showed up. There's no evidence of the disease in Esty's body anymore. There's no evidence, and and here's why. Because I truly believe that God orchestrated Desperate people praying desperately on behalf of baby Esty. I I believe that he orchestrated the right doctors in the right moments and the right conversations to intervene with their knowledge to help her get better. I believe that God put the right tribe of people around us here at this church and in our families to walk with us through it. That he showed up dynamically and the coworkers here at this church and the coworkers at Courtney's work, that God showed up. And here's the reality. We could just stop and be like, oh God, praise God, she is healed. And we do, we praise God for that. But we keep praying for baby Esty. And I keep praying for Kendrick and for Cashson and for Armani because there's still more desperate prayers that I get to pray on their behalf. Prayer, we believe, truly steers us into and through God's will, even when his will looks and feels different than what ours might be. Desperate prayers. Every once in a while, we end some messages and even worship times where we open up the front here for prayer. And here's what I want to do. This this front is going to become just an altar of prayer. And unlike in previous times where I've said, you know, come up to the front. If you need to lay down, you know, a prayer and, and just lay it down at the feet, like have this serve as the altar. I want to invite you and I and us to do something differently today. What if this becomes an altar of prayer desperate prayers for this community for the broken people that live not even a mile away what if god is in the business of taking new ground in comstock park and it starts this morning that the kingdom of god wants to move past just these four walls and into the community in a greater way What if we pray that people would come to a trunk or treat and they would begin to have an experience with the living, breathing God that they've never known before, all because they showed up with a little dinosaur costume and got candy? What if we pray that the Holy Spirit would rain down on Comstock Park in Grand Rapids like it's never rained down before? I don't ever want to be somewhere and look out and say, man, revival happened over there. I'm so bummed I missed it. This front, this front is just going to be an altar to come and just pray desperate prayers for the lost people in our lives, to pray that God would meet them. Maybe you walked in here this morning and you were lost and you're searching. This altar can be the moment where you go before God and you say, God, I'm desperate for you. I've tried all the other answers in this world has to offer, but you and you alone, I I believe you can give it to me. So, would you meet him desperately here? And would you leave walking in his radical love for you? And it's going to start with me. I'm, I'm going to be the first one. Desperate prayers. I texted or emailed my advisory team last night saying it starts with leadership. It starts with us. My staff knows it starts with us to desperately lead and desperately pray for a broken community that needs the hope and the love of Jesus Christ. And so I'm gonna pray for us. And after this prayer, if you are feeling prompted to join us in the front and pray for this community, Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your family members. Pray for your coworkers. Please, would you join us desperately in the front? Let your prayers get messy and desperate. I'd love to pray for us as we continue to worship this morning. Would you join me? Father, we come before you. And first and foremost, we acknowledge that you are God. We acknowledge that you are good. And God, we acknowledge that you are a God who meets us exactly where we're at, even in the desperation. And so, Lord, I ask that your kingdom come, your will be done in Comstock Park as it is in heaven. That we would see your presence like we've never seen before. That we would hear from you and, and walk with you like we've never done before, Lord. I ask that you would just pour out your spirit in fresh new ways, Lord i pray that we'd have a radical encounter with you and for those of us today that maybe walked in feeling like we are broken that we are lost that there's no hope god would you meet us here today that we would walk out with a relationship with you that we would confess that we are broken sinners that we are flawed and that we need the love of a radical savior and a perfect savior And that's Jesus, your son that you sent to die for us on the cross. Would we welcome him into our lives to consume us and lead us into your will, Lord? When we confess, Lord, and we believe, we know that you meet us there and you walk with us. So, Father, meet us here in these desperate prayers, in these desperate moments here. We pray, come, Holy Spirit, come today, tomorrow, and always pour out your presence, Lord, and let us fight our battles, fight these battles on our knees in prayer to you. We give it all to you, and we pray this in your name, a name that is above all other names, in the name of Jesus. Amen.